Hello, and welcome to episode 143 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Radley Balco about police accountability. Radley Balco has been a journalist for 20 years. He's worked at the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, and Reason Magazine. He has also written two widely acclaimed books, Rise of the Warrior Cop and The Cadaver King and The Country Dentist, which was co-written with Tucker Carrington. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Radley Balco. Uh, Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Yeah. I always ask the same first question. How do you get from wherever you started in life to where you became a journalist and author specializing in police and police accountability? Uh, sure. So um kind of always knew I wanted to be a writer in some form from an early age, and it was just kind of a matter of getting to where I could make a living doing that. Um, so one point in my 20s, I, when I was kind of figuring out what to do, I did what lots of people do, which is went to law school. Uh, I went there for a year and um, decided, looking at the debt, that I would have probably have to work for a firm for about 20 years if I continued on. So um, dropped out, took a, a job with a dot com doing uh, writing, sort of uh, entertainment writing uh, on um, this was in the late 90s. They, they promptly went bankrupt like most dot coms did and um, ended up at the Cato Institute, um, the libertarian think tank in D.C. Um, I was editing the website there for a while and then eventually I got a policy job covering civil liberties. And it was really there that... Um, I think I really started taking issues in this these issues. I grew up pretty in a pretty conservative, um, pretty much all white uh, town in uh, Indiana and in the suburbs of Indianapolis. And um, you know, I'd kind of figured out at some point in my twenties that I was a libertarian, uh, early twenties, I guess. Um, but it was really at Cato uh, and covering civil liberties and the drug war that I, uh, you know, I think probably found kind of my calling or the, the issues that I wanted to sort of cover or that that was I was most passionate about. And it was really just reading these stories about SWAT raids and, um, you know, abusive informants and killings uh, related to the drug war. Um, you know, I'd read about these stories. It would just make me angry. Uh, and uh, they were the kind of stories that I was fascinated by, but also infuriated by and decided that, you know, at some point that this is kind of what I wanted to cover full time or, or kind of dedicate my work to. Um, I ended up uh, going to Reason Magazine because I was I, I wrote a paper for a white paper for Cato on the use of SWAT tactics and forced entry raids and found this story in Mississippi about this guy named Corey May, uh, who had been wrongly raided. Um, by a, a narcotics uh, unit in Mississippi. He lived in a duplex. They were clearly trying to raid the guy on the other side of the duplex who was their suspect. Um, Corey, who had no prior criminal record, shot and killed one of the cops during the raid and then immediately surrendered after he realized they were police. Uh, when I found his story, he was still on death row in Mississippi. So I started looking into that case and I blogged about it at the time. This was in the early blogging days and um, ended up writing an article about it for Reason Magazine. Um, eventually, Reason hired me and kind of put me on this beat full time. And um, that's kind of where I am now. Um, I ended up going to Huffington Post and then the Washington Post for about 10 years. And now I'm uh, uh, independent uh, and, uh, you know, operate on my, uh, well, I'm doing a lot of freelance work, but also uh, write on a Substack, which um, it's just 
uh, me, Bradley Balco, Substack.com, which is, um, it's called The Watch. And, you know, it's kind of my beat. I do um, invent long form investigative stuff, but also analysis and commentary on, on criminal justice, the drug war and, and civil liberties issues. So. I know I started to get to know you because of your Twitter feed, uh, but since then I've caught up with your Substack and a lot of your other writing. Uh, but briefly, uh, since we're both kind of longtime Twitter users, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts of kind of the current state of Twitter before we move into kind of more topical stuff? Oh, it's awful. I mean, I think Musk has, has driven it into the ground. Um, he's amplified. I've, I've sort of compared what he did, what he's done to Twitter to, um, you know, at a football game, finding the drunk, drunkest and rowdiest section of fans and giving them the intercom system, you know, and letting them <laughs> do whatever they want to it uh, with it. Cause he's really amplifying the worst voices. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. You know, I, I still use it because, you know, I've spent 15 years building a, a following and, and I make my living basically from people, you know, following and, and subscribing to my work. So it's hard to kind of walk away from that, but yeah, I, I totally um, feel you on that. <laughs> I'm really hoping, uh, you know, blue sky or uh, it's probably going to be blue sky. If it's any, any of them, uh, you know, gets a, once it goes public, you know, widely uh, used, you know, opens it up to the public. I'm hoping they'll get that critical mass of users that I think you need to make it useful. So a few years ago, we kind of saw the start of a crime wave that generated kind of a number of political narratives and kind of a lot of reactions, a lot of attention uh, on progressive prosecutors, a backlash against both police reform and against police uh, reform, uh, backlash against the reform of the rest of the criminal justice system. There are kind of several parts of what caused this. First, there's kind of gun violence and homicides. Do you have any feel for what kind of we've had a couple of years now? Uh, do you have any feel for kind of what's caused these increases? I mean, my running theory has been that COVID might have had something to do with it, but uh, yeah. you know, I don't know if you've uh, where, where you're at on this. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I, I I think there are probably a variety of contributors. I think that anybody who claims to to know definitively what caused it um, is is probably somebody you shouldn't listen to. Um, I, you know, it coincided with. You know, you can't help but notice that it coincided with one of the, you know, a once in a century pandemic that like upended every part of our lives. And, you know, historically, when there have been rises or, you know, steep uh, increases in homicide, it's come during times of social upheaval and unrest and, and you know, a lot of people uh, having to change their lives, a lot of people uh, becoming sort of aware of and angry at the way sort of they and people like them are, are treated by the political system, by the criminal justice system. You know, I, I think it's kind of a mistake to say that George Floyd protests had nothing to do with the increase in crime. I think, you know, there, there's plenty of research showing that when people um, become disillusioned with the criminal justice system, when they think that the police are there to harm them instead of help them, um, you know, they, they, they stop cooperating with police and crime goes up. And, you know, I think one thing the George Floyd protests did, and I think they did a lot of good and I'm I'm not even sure this is a net bad, but they did kind of make more people aware of the the flaws in policing and the flaws in the criminal justice system and the racial sort of inherent racial inequities in both. Um, But that said, I think COVID is, is probably a better or, you know, a, a better explanation for a greater percentage of the increase. Um, you know, you've had everything from, you know, general kind of social upheaval, 
uh, COVID also sort of focused people's attention on inequities in, in the healthcare system and the way, you know, we treat certain people, um, the way we treat marginalized groups. Um, you also had disruptions in drug in black market, uh, you know, the drug drug markets. Um, so you had, you know, probably less people using, you had less police, you had probably disruptions in supply. So anytime that happens, you're going to have people fighting over turf. Uh, and of course, because drugs are illegal, um, you know, you don't, you don't win over new customers with, you know, better customer service or better product, right? You, you win it over with violence. Um and then the other thing that I think is a little bit overlooked, and I wrote a column on this for the Washington Post, but um, you know, it's probably a lot less true true now. Although we are seeing um, uh, homicide numbers start to decline uh, all over the country at this point, but um, certainly for the first time, it's one of the largest declines in a, a really long time historically. Right. Well, that's also I think because we had this artificial blip, you know, artificial increase that that now is coming back down. Um, but you know, I think one one overlooked factor is that in the first couple of years of the pandemic, um, we had fewer witnesses. Right, people were staying home, uh, people weren't going to work, they weren't going to bars and restaurants, they weren't out late at night. You know, after coming home from a bar, which is tends to be when a lot of crime happens. Um, and studies, you know, have shown over and over again that when you have fewer people watching, people tend to commit more crimes. And so, right as right at the same time that these you know, the black markets for illicit drugs are being disrupted and you're having these this fight over turf wars and fight over this kind of change in the customer base, you have fewer sort of witnesses on the street. Um, and so it becomes easier, you know, to harm people and to kill people uh, because there's nobody around to watch. Uh, and I think that that, you know, might be one overlooked contributor to the increase, at least in homicides. And then there's kind of the other end of the crime spectrum, which is that there's kind of been a, a wave of retail thefts, or at least reported a wave of retail yeah. thefts. Uh, do you have a feel for what was kind of accurate and inaccurate, and, and what might have caused that kind of end of the of the the crime increase? Yeah, that's you know that's tough because we saw an increase in homicides almost everywhere in the country. The retail theft thing is, um, you know, it, it's hard to. Uh, get a sense of what's actually going on there. It's hard to get a sense of if there really was a, a significant increase. Um, the Atlantic had a good nuanced piece on this a couple of years ago, but tried to look at the numbers. Um, you know, even to places like San Francisco, where you know you see, you saw most of the uh, kind of hysteria over uh, you know, moral panic over uh, shoplifting, the numbers really didn't bear that out. Um, now the response from kind of law and order crowd is well. Why would you report, you know, shoplifting if it's not going to be prosecuted or people aren't going to be arrested? Um, and the problem with that is I, I actually looked into this a little bit. And, um, you know, retailers have lots of incentives to report shoplifting. In fact, most shoplifters, even before the pandemic, before all of this happened, um, aren't caught. Um, and they're even less likely to be caught now because, you know, retailers like Walgreens and CVS have told their security people, their security guards to stop detaining people suspected of shoplifting for basically for liability reasons. So people are more likely to get away. But the idea that it's not being reported um, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If I'm a manager of a CDS, um, I have to explain to my you know regional regional manager or the corporate people why the you know the explanation for shrinkage. Um, and so you know it's in my interest to report shoplifting, and it's in the the corporation's general interest because one for insurance purposes. So they get, uh, you know, reimbursed for, uh, for stolen merchandise, but also because it makes sense for them politically, right? They, 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 
They want laws to crack down on shoplifting. They want more public and political attention on shoplifting. Uh, so it, you know, it's in their interest to make shoplifting look as bad as possible. Um, so, you know, I just don't buy this idea uh, that there's an incentive for them or disincentive for them to report it. So if that's the case, um, you know, uh, the numbers don't bear out the idea that there's this been this mass wave. I think it's gone up a little bit in the last couple of years. But when when the hysteria over it started, the numbers suggested it had been going down. But there have been other in- increases in other types of crime, uh, break-ins in places like San Francisco. Um, we've seen a lot of cities have seen really significant in- increases in car theft um, car and car jackings. And, you know, I mean, there are lots of possible explanations. I'm not going to claim to know, you know, definitively say this is what caused it. But, you know, you have during the epidemic, you had a lot of uh, teenagers uh, at home, you know, with nothing to do. Uh, everything was closed. They weren't going to school. Um, you know, kids. It's kind of similar to the explanation for why there was a spike in domestic violence, too. Is right. Or home so much more. Exactly. Yeah. Kids get bored and they do stupid shit. I did stupid shit when I, you know, was a teenager. I didn't steal cars, but, you Not know. Not me. <laughs> I did some vandalism, you know, I put firecrackers in mailboxes. Uh, um, so you know, I, I think that's a, a pretty good explanation. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to spend too much time talking about kind of the other explanations that don't make a lot of sense. Like, you know, despite the fact that it was a fairly universal increase that certain types of policies caused it or certain kinds yeah, of prosecutors. There's just, there's just no, I mean, that's the lots of, of academics have looked into that. Um, people from John Poff, uh, you know, who is who does have a perspective, but like people like Jeff Asher, who's a straight numbers guy and, you know, doesn't really project any sort of politics, has, you know, has found no correlation between uh, party affiliation or, or uh, you know, reform policies and increases or decreases in crime. There's just no evidence for that, you know, either way. Um, and, you know, I, my hunch is that you know, policy plays a very, very small role in our crime rates. I think they're much more controlled by, you know, these broader kind of societal issues that, um, you know, and they vary from city to city. It doesn't, I mean, obviously crime has has been worse in some places than others, but the idea that, you know, criminals sort of factor in, you know, the politics of their local DA before they commit crimes, there's no evidence for that. Or, you know, small changes in sentencing policy or, you know, right. The deterrence works that way is a little bit uh, uh, hard to, 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 to accept. Uh, Yeah. Just, yeah, it's crazy. There's also kind of a persistent narrative that was caused uh, about police being defunded all over the the country after the Floyd murder. Uh, I was in fact, just the other night I was watching the Chris Christie town hall and he suggested that police and police abilities have been degraded for years. Uh, yeah. And, there's uh, just, yeah. Again, there's no, there's no evidence that there's been any, I mean, I think a few cities may have diverted like 5%, maybe at most 10 uh, from policing to other sort of um, public safety programs like violence interruption or mental health uh, or, you know, homelessness. Um, But in the vast majority of the country, including places that set records for homicides like Mobile, Alabama, Indianapolis, Toledo, um, you know, there were increases in funding for police and some, in some places, pretty significant increases. Um, You know, I will say, I think, you know, I, I've been sort of long been skeptical of the Ferguson effect and, you know, this idea that police, when they're heavily criticized and when they're to protest and there's a lot of scrutiny that they sort of stop doing their jobs and uh, stop doing, you know, um, I mean, I guess the theory is they stop doing proactive policing and that's why crime goes up. 
I don't think there's much evidence for that. I do think there's some evidence that they just kind of stopped doing anything. Um, and, you know, the evidence for that is what police organizations themselves have said, right? I mean, the Chicago Police Union had said if, uh, you know, the more progressive candidate won the mayoral election, the cops would stop doing their jobs. Um, we had NYPD do a couple of shutdowns um, or, or whatever they call them, blue outs. Um, and, you know, in both cases, crime crime went down uh, during those those phases. Um, but we have seen a lot of police leave uh, departments. There, there's a, a crisis of personnel, particularly in big city departments around the country. Um, and you know, I, I do think that people who advocate for reform um, kind of have to reckon with this this idea. But I, I, but I actually think it's people on the right who really need to reckon with it. And and this is this notion that um, that the policing has become so psychologically isolated from the rest of society that, you know, I think there's, there's, there's some truth to the idea that when cops are heavily criticized uh, or when, you know, there's a, a video that goes viral or, or now that we're seeing more prosecutors willing to press charges against police when they kill someone unjustly or, or beat someone um, that they do stop doing their jobs um, or in some cases, they just stop doing their jobs because they don't like the new leadership in the police department uh, or they don't want to. Um, you know, I'm working on a story about a town in Minnesota uh, where the town hired a black police chief and about 80 percent of the police department, all white officers quit because they didn't want to work for a black chief. Um, now, they'll say it was, you know, some other policy like you know, some sort of DEI initiative or something. But he, this chief hadn't even implemented any policies yet and they quit. Um you know, I do think we need to recommend the fact that the, that the policing profession has gotten to the point where they don't sort of respect civilian leadership when they don't agree with it. And, and they don't see their job as to sort of enact the policies of the political leadership. They see their job as basically kind of to, to, to do what they want. Um, and that's bad for society. I mean, we're is at the point where- like, Is the far end of that what we're seeing with the kind of sheriff's gangs in California and stuff like that? Is that- well, I, I mean, that's been going on forever. Um, you know, that's been going on for decades. No, I, I think what we're seeing now is is this kind of, um, I think it's more we're seeing it with sort of a lot of these rural sheriffs who are saying they're not going to enforce certain laws um, at all, um, that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of become part of the kind of MAGA patriot, you know, militia movement. Um, but also just this idea that like... The so-called constitutional sheriffs, or is that the... right? Right. But I also think this is a par with what police unions have been doing. Um, and, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, the, the the Ferguson effect people on the right, the people who push this, it's always surprised me if they push it because it's a really unflattering uh, explanation when it comes, if you're a defender of, of law enforcement, this idea that they're going to let violence happen, they're going to let people die and be murdered because they don't want to be scrutinized, they don't want to be criticized. Um, that is not a flattering profile of, of the state of law enforcement in this country. Um, but I, you know, it's interesting to look like there might be, it might be somewhat accurate. And, you know, I think we have to kind of reckon with that. And we have to say, you know, what does this mean for policing? And, and frankly, you know, maybe we don't want those people in policing anyway, right? If, if you're, if you're going to resign because you don't work for a black police chief, maybe that you're not the kind of person that should be holding a badge and a gun in the first place. Yeah, you know, I mean, I uh, have had unfortunately some firsthand experience with both the police and the and and correctional officers, 
And, uh, you know, my thing that, you know, I always think that like the thing that they get the most wrong when you have these discussions is at least in my experience, and that's several prisons and some jails and some going from place to place and getting arrested and all that stuff, which I admit is anecdotal, but was that in every single one of those places that I went, it seemed very clear that it was very well known in those departments and in those places and in those administrations that there were a certain number of people in the department who were you know, for lack of a better term, kind of off the tether, would be willing to do pretty much anything. And they used those people strategically. It wasn't that there was good apples and bad apples. It was that there were good apples and bad apples, and the administration knew that and used that strategically. It wasn't right. that, you know, that you could just excise one or whatever. It seemed to me it was more systemic. I don't know if that's been your... Yeah, look, I mean, the whole bad apple thing... Um you know, people forget the second part of that saying. It's like a few bad apples spoil the bunch. And if you don't take them out, uh, then you get more bad apples and it become, you know, it's it's um, it's like a disease. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I say this arguing about what percentage of cops are bad or abusive or corrupt uh, kind of misses the point. I mean, if you have a system that refuses to hold the bad, abusive, corrupt cops uh, accountable when it's pretty clear they did something wrong, you have a systemically, you know, a foundationally corrupt system. Um, and it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, this debate about like, well, most cops are good people or most cops are bad people or why do they're good cops? Why don't they, you know, report the bad cops or why do they cover up for the bad cops? I mean, fundamentally, if you have a system that doesn't hold clear bad actors accountable, you've got a broken system. Um, and, you know, that's what we have. I mean, I think there's uh, very, very, strong evidence across the board. I mean, city after city after city, we find that uh, a very tiny percentage of civilian complaints against police are upheld. Of those, a very tiny percentage of police officers are actually disciplined in any way. And of those, even smaller percentage are disciplined in any significant way. And even those, there's always some sort of appeals process or arbitration, um, you know, that makes it extremely difficult for those cops to actually be fired. And even then, uh, they can just get a job somewhere else. Um, so we have a system that doesn't get rid of the bad apples. Uh, and that's, you know, why I think we're seeing, in fact, I mean, not only that, but I mean, Marshall Project and some other groups have done some reporting on this. Bad apples are usually the ones that are are picked to become field training officers to train new officers, right? Because they want the guys who have been around for a long time, who are sort of trusted by other cops in, you know, in the department um, to show the new guys the ropes. And so they teach, you know, the worst habits uh, they find the worst cops with the worst habits, and those are the guys who teach the new generation. I think that was a big part of that last uh, David Simon uh, piece on HBO. I, I forget what it's called, but it was uh, about kind of corrupt. Another thing about corrupt cops in yeah. Baltimore it was kind of a we own the city. Yeah, that was it. We own the city. Right. Uh, here, and when we start talking about this, the thing that eats me away at me and makes it, it's 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 crazy making in my head is I I don't seem I don't understand. How And I get to some extent it's privilege and to some extent it's never going to happen to me, but how can we care so little about a profession that we literally give the power over life and death to, you know, I mean, it's like, it's just, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, it, it's, um, it's hard for me to conceive of why we don't think that's more, more important. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I come from kind of a libertarian background and there's a, a school of thought in libertarian called public choice theory. And the idea is that, um, when you take somebody and you give them a, a job in the public sector, they don't stop being human, right? They don't start become these sort of 
altruistic people who only act in the public good, they still, you know, they still are selfish people. We are like we all are, and they still do things for themselves. And, you know, they're still going to remember things in a way that makes them look good rather than bad. And, and, you know, that they, um, you know, it, it manifests in ways like, you know, if you're in charge of a public agency that's supposed to address, you know, this particular problem, it actually is in your interest to not completely eradicate that problem, right? Because then you're out of a job. And in fact, it, it's in your interest to sort of exaggerate the extent of the problem. And so this is this idea is, you know, that that it isn't that it isn't sort of an Ayn Randian sort of endorsement of self-interest or selfishness. It's it's saying it's this is just human nature. And so our laws and our policies should be should be written and enforced and designed in a way that acknowledges this and sort of th th that's built into the system, right? We don't just sort of expect people to act in the best interest of the public all the time. Well, conservatives love this, love public choice theory when it comes to, you know, staffing the EPA or, you know, the FDA or the SEC. Um, you know, it's this idea that, okay, well, yeah, these people aren't just going to enforce these regulations based on a devotion to public service. They're going to be you know, jerks about it and they're going to be angry bureaucrats. But then you take a guy out of high school and you give him six weeks of academy training and a gun and a badge and the power to detain and beat and kill people. And all of a sudden conservatives are like, wow, you know, we can't second second guess these police officers. We can't question their judgment, right? Like, who are you to say that cops are selfish and, you know, only act in their own interests? And it's like, those, these are the people we should be more scrutinous of, right? These are the people who, who you know, we need to be the laws need to be extra careful about, um, and yet, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, as difficult it is, as it is to sort of fire a public servant, it's probably about twenty times more difficult to fire a police officer. At the same time, I mean, it's hard to argue that there aren't some pretty serious problems with police. To start with, there's kind of a decent amount of police violence against regular folks. I, I saw a statistic the other day. I haven't verified it, so I'm not sure this is correct or close to correct. But there's some. There's probably some relationship there is that you're almost as likely to be shot by an officer as you are to be shot during uh, some other kind of criminal encounter. Uh I think that's true. More true for for black men. I think it's that maybe that's what the statistic is. I think I've seen that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Though there's a lot of there's there's at least a, yeah. a, a substantive amount of use of force by police, uh, not always in the solving of a crime. <laughs> right. Well, I think there's you know there the fact that police also beat and kill white people um, is often cited by kind of libertarian types or moderates as well. You know. So when you when you emphasize the racial disparities and systemic racism in policing, you overlook all these other cases and that, you know, turns white people off. So we should just talk about police brutality in general. Well, I mean, you can talk about both. Right. We can talk about the problems in policing that make cops unaccountable, that make them less transparent, that contribute to this lack of um you know, this this willingness to sort of cover for one another, the whole blue wall thing. Uh, and then you can also talk about, you know, the the inherent racism in policing and from the way it was sort of designed and constructed and and has been has evolved over the years um, to the way it's enforced and, you know, the way it was used during the Jim Crow era and how that evolved into what we have today. So, you know, it, it, both of these things can be true at the same time. Um, you can have problems with policing that affect everyone, uh, and you can have problems in policing in which those problems disproportionately affect, you know, minority communities or marginalized communities. And it, it shouldn't be hard to understand, and yet people people seem to be willfully, willfully want to misunderstand 
And I think, you know, we've we, we brought up uh, the Floyd protests several times, you know, one of the biggest public protests in U.S. history. Uh, we still have a lot of police violence. Uh, it almost feels like uh, it's harder to bring accountability measures. And it feels like in a lot of ways, police funding has gone up and I'm not sure reform has gone up within police. Do you have kind of a uh, feel for that since this is kind of what you do. I, I see anecdotal stuff. I don't necessarily see the. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hard. So it's, it's a hard thing to measure how much reform is happening, but I, I do think actually, you know, in my sort of 20 years on this beat, I think we've seen more substantive reform since the Floyd protest than, you know, at any period since I've been covering this. Um, I think there's been actual reform. Uh, we've seen, you know, entire states like Virginia, uh, as well as I think a few dozen, uh, you know, significant towns and cities uh, ban no-knock raids or, or implement some sort of restrictions on them. Um, seen lots more, even more places put bans on uh, chokeholds and carotid holds. Um, lots of, you know, reforms. Uh, lots of, a, a couple of states now have uh, created a kind of workaround for qualified immunity. So there's now a state cause of action if a police officer violates your civil rights. And, you know, if you told me five years ago that we'd seen these kind of proposals, uh, I would have told you you're out of your mind. I mean, I don't think people, most people knew what qualified immunity was five years ago. And now it's like, I've seen 60 to 65% of the public supports reforming or eliminating it. Um, and similar numbers for ending no-knock raids. So, uh, you know, I think I think the Flo George Floyd protest did move the needle pretty significantly in public opinion, um, less significantly, but still noticeably when it comes to actual substantive reform. You know, I think we've had a long, long, long way to go to get to a sort of just and equitable system of law enforcement. Um, but, you know, I think I'm I'm more optimistic than I've been in a long time in terms of what's happened since the George Floyd protests. Uh, one thing that, you know, as we're kind of looking into you know, what the answers are and how do we get to those. And, you know, but there's been a lot of things that people have suggested. One thing I think that most people seem to have some consensus on, at least people who study this, is that there's a large body of research that suggests that increased police in particular places at particular times, uh, for instance, like uh, what are called hotspots, have an effect of reducing crime. Yeah. Uh, is does this mean, as I think some people have suggested, that the answer is just to have more police everywhere, or to more more surveillance everywhere, or to have more tech everywhere, facial recognition, et cetera? Yeah. Um, look, I think there's there, like you said, there is evidence that hiring more police has a, a, a an effect on reducing crime. Um, you know, you could take that to its logical conclusion and say, you know, well, North Korea has almost no crime at all, right? I mean, that doesn't mean it's the kind of society we want to live in. Um, you know, the one place I've seen the Niskanen Center did a study on what happens when you hire more police officers, and they found that crime does go down, but they also found a corresponding increase in arrests for very low-level offenses, and they factored the, the damage that those arrests did into their analysis, and it comes out, you know, much more, much closer to a wash than you've seen in, in these other studies. The other thing is we don't know how long the effect lasts and if people sort of adjust to what's happening. There are also political and practical considerations. You can't just saturate every part of the city. I mean, a lot of times if you crack down in one area, crime's going to pop up in other areas. This is particularly true with drug crime because, I mean, drug crime is like the air in a balloon, right? I mean, you're never going to get rid of it. You know, you can move it around, uh, but you're never going to get rid of it. 
Uh, and the crime that's associated with that is, is always going to be here as long as you have black markets for, for some types of drugs. Um, there's also, you know, not a lot of scrutiny on what it is about policing that reduces crime or appears to reduce crime. Is it, you know, that people in these neighborhoods are intimidated by police? Is it that, um, you know, these arrests are taking people off the street? You know, John Poff has suggested, and, and I think I think he makes a compelling argument that it's it's what he calls the sentinel effect. It's just the fact that when people are watching, uh, people are less likely to commit crimes. Well, does that mean you could achieve the same effect with you know neighborhood watch groups or um, you know community uh, crime, you know anti crime community groups, uh, private security system uh, uh, officers and agents, security officers? Um, or, you know, violence interruption groups, um, you know, the, the, we don't know. And certainly if we can have the same effect on reducing crime without the, you know, accompanying, uh, you know, destructiveness and damage, damage that policing does to marginalized communities, that's something we need to look into. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of reformers have made this point that uh, a lot of people are really kind of critical and down on these uh, violence interruption groups because, the academic research isn't there to support, you know, that we don't have overwhelming academic research that says this works. Um, what, you know, research is out there, I think suggests that it's definitely worth looking at and investing more money in You know, the, the amount of money you have to invest to get the same deterrent effect um, that you get from policing is, is minuscule by comparison. So certainly something we want to look into um, a lot of foreign people. Well, I, maybe I, I know, you know, I don't want to kick back too much, but I know that, for instance, in Patrick Sharkey's research, he suggests that fairly minimal investments in a bunch of different things that happen in communities can have pretty outsized effect and that an opportunity cost of increased funding for policing is probably these community programs. So, I, I mean, I do think that there's and, I, you know, I think there's particular programs like I think there's one in Denver uh, that they've been putting in social workers where police would normally go in. That's been quite effective. Oh, yeah. So, think- so yeah. So I, I was yeah, I was working my way up to that. So the the like the Coots program, which started in Eugene, is now in Denver and, and about a dozen cities across the country it's been enormously successful and this is where yeah they send a um a mental health professional uh when someone calls 911 because somebody's having a mental health crisis instead of you know a SWAT team and believe it or not you know when you send a therapist instead of a SWAT team you're less likely to have bad results um and not only have it been successful, <laughs> right not only has it been successful you know overwhelmingly successful they haven't even needed to call the police and like some you know 99 plus percent of cases, um, the police were never even necessary. Uh, so that's, you know, that's one example. Um, you know, I was talking more about kind of the cure violence type groups, um, which I'm not down at at all. I think we do need to invest in them more. I think the research that is out there is encouraging. The violence it's not, interruption kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's not conclusive yet, but it's certainly encouraging. And, you know, the, the argument that reform people have made that I think is, is pretty persuasive is if we held these groups violence interruption type groups, you know, if if the standards that sort of moderates and tough on crime people are holding these groups to, like we must have overwhelming academic research before we fund them, if we held policing to that same standard, you know, we wouldn't give policing any money at all. Um, we just kind of accept whatever research is out there that says more cops equals less crime, and we don't really question it all that much. Uh, whereas, you know, we give heavy scrutiny to these violence interruption groups, even though the research that is out there does show that they prevent crime. I know you've written about this a lot, so I think this seems like a good place to kind of throw this in there a little bit, is, you know, you've got police in place, time and manner, 
Uh, and one element of the maybe the problem is what you've written about, which is kind of the over-militarization of the police. Does that play into this as well, or is that? Yeah, so I, I, there are two sides of militarization. Um, one is the stuff, right? So the guns and the, the ballistics gear and the tanks and well, armor personnel carriers, all that. Um, and, you know, there's a time and place for some of that stuff. Some of it's ridiculous and unnecessary and excessive. Um, but the flip side to that is is the mindset, right? The militaristic mindset, this idea that it's cops versus everybody else, you know, that that they're the cities that they serve aren't, you know, cities, they're battlefields. Um, and, you know, they they do whatever they have to do to get home at night, right? They're, they're not serving and protecting people. They just, they just, they're just surviving, you know? Um, and that's, you know, that's a really bleak outlook on the world and on the people that whose rights they're supposed to be protecting. Um, but this is kind of the mentality that you see. This is you see it in you know police message boards and police websites. Uh, that phrase, you know, whatever I have to do to get home at night, you'll see some version of it over and over and over again. Uh, you see it in like police culture, police T-shirts, police um, you know the patches that they wear, the challenge coins that they issue. You know, a lot of skulls and crossbones and grim reapers and um, you know death in general. A lot of use of the Punisher. Right. Punish the Punisher stuff. Absolutely. You know, the vigil- vigilanteism um, and, you know, a lot of dis- just kind of disrespect for the people, you know, who they're supposed to be protecting. Again, um, there was that uh, uh, study that uh, one of the nonprofit groups did. I think Politico published it a few years ago that, you know, found something like one in five uh, police officers in the cities that they looked at had posted something either you know, racist, misogynistic, or glorifying violence on their social media pages. Um, you know, and that's a one in five is a lot. Um, and, the, you know, those are the ones that they found. Um, so, you know, we've seen, we've also seen this, you know, anytime there's been like investigations into police texting and uh, emails. And I mean, you find it, you know, over and over and over again, um, no matter what, you know, the Manhattan Institute tells you there is, you know, rampant uh, racism and bigotry uh, in policing. And, you know, it's, it's something we need to, there's a problem with police culture, I think, in this country. And I think part of it is this isolation I talked about earlier, where, you know, police just kind of see themselves as constantly under attack um, and, you know, see that the only people they can really trust are other cops and their families and it's them against the world. And it's just, you know, it's a really unhealthy for the people that they're supposed to be protecting. But it's also just what a miserable way to go about your day to day work life. Right. You see yourself at sort of war, at war with everyone. You're driving around in your your squad car and the only interactions you have with other people are confrontational. Right. I mean, imagine that that was your work life. I mean, it's sort of like if you were, uh, if Twitter were sort of brought to life and it were your, you know, your everyday uh, interactions, you know, in the physical world, um, you know, it's a kind of a miserable way to live. And, you know, no wonder a lot of cops are uh, kind of angry and, and, uh, and cranky all the time. You know, uh, you know, we, another element of this, you know, so you've got maybe militarization is a problem. Another problem, it, it seems to me, at least for most of the research I've read, that yeah, I mean, we we can talk about if police deter or don't deter, but one thing seems to be true when it comes to serious crimes, clearance rates are relatively low. And a lot of yeah. people, and you know, even when we're talking about people who've been incarcerated, there's a gigantic amount of people who've committed the same crimes who never get arrested for anything. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, and look, this is you know, one thing I point I've tried to point out over and over again is that. In every city where we've seen massive sort of protests, where one incident spurred, you know, a, a huge protest, whether well, it's Baltimore, Freddie Gray, um, you know, Ferguson, Michael Brown, uh, 
um, uh, Philando Castile, George Floyd, you know, every one of these cities has a long and documented history of police abuse, corruption, and racism. Um, you'll find, you'll probably find a DOJ study on every, or you will find a DOJ study on every one of these cities, Chicago, Baltimore. These are also all the cities that not only have high, you know, exceptionally high crime rates, these are all cities where crime never really went down while it did in the rest of the country. And, you know, I think those things are all related. I don't think that any of those, th- those, those things should surprise us. If you have, um, if you have a police department that has a documented history of abuse and, and racism, particularly against marginalized communities, um, and which we've also seen in a lot of these cities, they have extremely low clearance rates, especially in marginalized communities. Well, if you live in one of those communities, you have police department, you know, that is probably beaten or wrongly arrested or harassed, you know, either you or your family or somebody you know, or some combination of those three. And they're not solving any crimes. I mean, of course, you're not going to trust the police, right? What are they doing for you, right? All they're doing is harassing you when you actually need them to, you know, because you got mugged or somebody stole your car or broke into your house or, you know, robbed the convenience store down the road that you use. Um, they're not solving those crimes. Uh, so they're not, you know, people don't trust them. And and I mean, the other problem that we're seeing in, in, in a lot of these cities, and, and it's, it's rocking places like Memphis right now, um, is they can't recruit. Right. Nobody wants to go work for these police departments because, you know, if you live in in one of these communities that's had to deal with police, the last thing you want to do is go work for, you know, a, a police agency. Um, and, you know, this, this place in Minnesota I talked about, um, you know, they're they're having a very difficult time recruiting people. Uh, their officers are leaving for entirely different reasons. Right. So you've got kind of white officers leaving because particularly in bigger city police departments, because. They don't like reform. They don't like working for a black chief. They don't like accountability. They don't like transparency. Um, but you can't replace those officers with black officers because the legacy of these departments in the communities that you would be recruiting from is, you know, abuse and corruption and harassment. And nobody wants to work for that department. Nobody wants to be the guy, you know, from the neighborhood who becomes a cop, uh, you know, if that neighborhood has been abused by police for the last 20 years. So, you know, we've got a kind of a crisis right now um, in, in policing. And, you know, one way to solve it, I think, is to kind of take a page from the abolition movement. I should say I'm not an abolitionist, but, you know, they have done, a lot of abolitionists have done the work. They have done the research. They do have sort of, you know, interesting ideas that we should at least be taking a look at. And, you know, we don't have to abolish the police, but we could definitely shrink the, the footprint, especially if, if, the logistics of what policing looks like right now makes that a necessity. So, you know, maybe we stop, you know, uh, uh, low level drug arrests. Maybe we stop putting police in schools and on subways, on public transportation. Um, and we start, you know, spending more resources on solving crime and, uh, you know, developing relationships in communities and doing sort of quality of life uh, improvements that don't sort of involve, you know, stop and frisk and suspicionless searches. Um, you know, we're going to have to figure out something to do with with fewer law enforcement officers because if, if people are quitting because they don't want accountability and they, they aren't able to find cops to replace them, um, we're going to have to start prioritizing. I mean, there's not. There's also a-, a structural problem where we're just going to, because of the demographics of the situation right now, my understanding is we're going to have in almost every field, we're going to have shortages in, in, in workforce. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, I, mean, I think it's, it's something that we're going to have to address, you know, and I think the, uh, 
Yeah, this gets. I mean, we could also just you know let in more immigrants, and that would help a lot of these problems. But we don't want to do that either, apparently. And that gets us kind of. I think uh, it's funny you bring that up because it kind of leads us to the politics of the thing. Because you know, in election after election over the last year, we've seen, and I can show you the heat maps. You know where the communities that are most impacted tend to vote for reform and the communities that are least impacted tend to vote for kind of the traditional law and order kind of, um, you know, a uh, message. And so how are we going to, I mean, starting with the people level, how do we, I mean, do you have any ideas of how we're going to start threading the needle of getting, or even trying to get people on the same page about why we need to change and what needs to change? Well, I think we don't even fully sort of understand Never mind sort of comparing, you know, people who vote for traditional policies versus reform policies. We don't even know why people who vote for reform policies vote for those policies, right? I mean, if you look at polling, you know, lots of people pointed it out before me, but, you know, if you look at polling of, of, of Black people, for example, they they support, you know, uh, massive reform. They, they're, they polling shows that Black people fear police more than they fear criminals, um, you know, they think that police are often unfair. They think the system is racism and they want more police officers and more spending on police. Right. And, you know, people on the right have said, oh, yeah, this just proves that all you reformers are, you know, full of shit. You know, black people want more cops, you know, ha ha ha, you know, defund ha ha ha. No, what it shows is that black people want to uh, not live in crime ridden communities and they don't want to be harassed by police. I mean, that's not that hard to understand. Um, and yet like people seem to see, 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 seem to look at those poll results and think they're contradictory. They're not. I mean, people want to feel safe. They want to feel safe from criminals. They also want to feel safe from police. Um, so, you know, you can, you can interpret those polls as black people want more money and more cops, or they just want police themselves to be more effective when they are there and less sort of, uh, harassing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Although I'm not just talking about polls, I'm talking about election results, like what just happened in Chicago, sure. what's happening in Pennsylvania, what's right. happening. I mean, but I'm that- saying, if you look, if you look at those election results, though, those same people, those those same communities also will tell pollsters they want more police or they want more spending on police. Um, but I think that what's that saying? What that's saying is they want safety and protection, and and they and the rest of us have been told over and over again. That the only way you get more more safety and more protection is by having more police. Like we're not we're not told that there may be other options, right? We're not told that investing in some of these other programs may have the same effect without the um, you know the collateral damage. And then there's kind of the problem of police culture. You know, uh, you know, how do we start? Is there a way? You know, like here, I'll give you an example. Recently, I was asked to start trying to formulate kind of a policy or policies for how to reform uh, jails. Mm-hmm. And my initial response was that if you go at it reg- in a regulatory manner, the sheriffs are mostly just going to ignore you. And that in a lot of ways, what you have to do is find ways to get them to think it's in their interest to do reform. And right. I'm not really even sure how I'm still in the process of sussing out how that happens. But it, I mean, do you have, you know, what are your thoughts on how you get into police uh, reform from the police side? Yeah, I don't know that. I mean, that's difficult. Um you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, have a lot of sway with, with law enforcement. So I, yeah, I haven't been particularly either. Um, you know, I think leadership matters. It's probably I think just having, like you more than me, but only because you're more known. For... Um, yeah. I mean, look, I, I mean, there are police officers who, who, you know, have assigned my book, you know, at police academies and, I was um, and, and it's always, you know, flattering to hear, but yeah, I mean, if you, I would, I would guess that the leaders of most police unions, if they know who I am, probably, you know, uh, 
don't like me. Um, but, you know, I think I think leadership matters. I think, um, you know, there there was a study that just came out uh, about two years ago finding that um, in big city police departments that have a black police chief, uh, there's something some dramatic number, like 60 percent fewer shootings by police officers. Um, so, you know, I do think having good leadership matters, but you also have to have the kind of institutional structure in place where um, a police chief is going to be able to, a good, you know, sort of chief that that understands all of this or kind of gets it is going to be able to implement their policies. Um, so I've written about a number of particularly black chiefs, but not just black chiefs across the country who were reformists who, you know, didn't last more than a few years because, you know, the union had an incredible amount of power to, to chase them out. Um, you know, people on the city council managed to sort of push them out. Or they weren't allowed to hire their own command staff because you had, you know, some of these civil service protections where the old guard, it was impossible for them to get rid of them. And so the old guard sort of brought them down from the inside and made it impossible for them. Uh, so I do think leadership matters. And I think we've seen lots of good examples where leadership matters, but uh, the leaders need to be able to lead, right? You have to take away the institutional barriers so that they can change the culture. And, and that's, you know, that's a difficult thing to do. And I think the third part of the chicken egg egg or egg chicken egg or whatever is kind of the media's part in all of this. You know, I mean, especially in a world in which a lot of police departments have the money to have media divisions and things like that. And we have yeah. decades of tough on crime kind of reporting. And if it bleeds, it leads, et cetera. Uh, do you have any thoughts about how we approach kind of the media landscape of all this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, it's hard to make sort of blanket statements about how the media co covers criminal justice because in some ways I think it, these issues are being covered better than they ever have before. I think you have more outlets that are doing serious investigative journalism. I think you have more, um, there are more platforms for people who are critical of law enforcement and critical of the current system to be heard um, from podcasting to social media to, you know, um, there's just, there's a lot of way, ways to get the word out. Um, you know, I think, there are some problems that persist, I think, particularly in small towns or, or where you only have one newspaper um, and you're a beat reporter, your your job is sort of contingent on police cooperating with you. And so it's going to be difficult for you to be critical or skeptical or ask, you know, tough questions. Um, I think that problem continues and it, it gets worse as, you know, media outlets fall. Um, and then, you know, like you said, I think the if, if it bleeds, it leads problem, I think, you know, for um a long time uh you know crime fell for a very very long time for about 20 25 years and uh you know there were some kind of long-term trend pieces about that but when it fell you know in the aggregate it fell by you know an incredible amount that that criminologists still really can't explain um but year to year it wasn't that much so we didn't get a lot of stories about how crime was falling uh, but then the second it goes up even a little bit, it's like, oh, we've reversed this 20 years chair and something's terrible has gone wrong. And, you know, I had worried about this. I mean, the first 15 years I covered this crime continued to go down and it was became easier and easier to sort of advocate reforms because, you know, the reality, the sort of real politic of the situation is that uh, if crime is low, it's a lot easier to implement reforms. And I worried what would happen when crime started going up again. And, we, you know, we would see if we would see a return to kind of the eighties and nineties and the um, kind of sky is falling, you know, uh, coverage. And, you know, we have seen some of that. I, I also think there's a lot more pushback though. Um, you know, I think every time near times um, uh, a post is something that, you know, maybe where they take, maybe take one sensational crime and report on it in a way that suggests it's um, 
representative when it isn't, or, you know, they quote some politician about blaming bail reform for an increase in crime. Like there's immediate backlash and, um, and, and, you know, I think the times has also done a lot of good crime reporting and good coverage as well. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm hesitant to kind of make a blanket statement about whether the media is good or bad about this, because I think it's kind of all over the place. Um, I think, you know, I think it's good for uh, pro reform people to continue to call out bad coverage when they see it. Um, you know, I think for example, you know, the, the coverage in San Francisco was horrific um, and, and there was this kind of pile on um, and you saw, you know, people who, were willing to kind of join the pylon, got more attention and more clicks and and more eyeballs. Uh, so there's an incentive uh, to sensationalize and and disincentive to push back. Um, but in other places, you know, I think the incentive may be uh, reversed. I think there's you know people like contrarian takes. Um, uh, so I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm rambling a little bit, but I think it's kind of all. But I, I think I think I'm rambling because the answer is kind of all over the place. I don't think there's any. Like yeah, I agree. It's, it's a lot more nuanced than just media bad, media good. Right. But I do think that a lot of times the even with people who are trying to do good work, that the the ability of police departments to immediately get their stuff in there makes it harder to fight back. And sometimes uh, reformers are presented kind of as the straw people. But I do agree there's a lot more genuinely good coverage than probably right. when I was younger and stuff like that. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, and again, I think local media is is particularly bad. I mean, local TV news is, you know, maybe the the most frustrating part of the entire industry because there is this, there's the sensationalism aspect. There's like the what kids your drugs are taking now stories. Um, you know, there's the ride alongs with the SWAT team that kind of glorified this kind of type of policing. Um, and there's just like a, um, uh, you know, there's the it's access problems, right? When you're a local TV reporter, um, you know, the police are a great source, you know, they're going to give you crazy stories and uh, scary crime stories that are going to scare parents. And so they're going to tune in and watch. And um, so, yeah. Uh, and there, there are a lot of great local reporters out there too, but, um, but yeah, I think, you know, particularly as we lose more and more local media, uh, the problem gets worse. Well, one thing I've been trying to do this season is kind of let people get to know my uh, guests a little bit more. Uh, do you have any hobbies? I know that's kind of <laughs> a weird question, but oh, uh, segue there. Not my, my, not my best segue, but uh, yeah, I do a little uh, amateur photography. Um, what else? Uh, I have, uh, well, we have two very old dogs. Um, you know, I pre-pandemic. My dog's actually yeah. sitting right over here watching me uh, do this interview. So. <laughs> Yeah, we have, uh, we used to, do, I mean, I love to travel, uh, then less of that, uh, since the pandemic, I'm hoping to start it, start up again and, uh, do a lot more, especially international, I'm very itching to get out of the country. Um, do you have any see. particular favorites so far or places you remember? In oh, well, I mean, the places I want to go, uh, the places I've been that I loved, um, uh, I really like Croatia. I've been there twice. Um, it's kind of, um, a poor man's uh, Italy. And I mean that in a really good way. Um, I mean, it's a, uh, you know, it's a gorgeous, beautiful, it's uh, interesting, uh, but it's really inexpensive and also has the kind of morbidly fascinating history of the Balkans war, you know, and the scars of it are still there. Um, uh, let's see where else. Um, love Slovenia. Um, 
Prague, Budapest, really love Budapest. You're um, making me happy. I'm Hungarian. So yeah, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, the you know the politics in Hungary are pretty horrible right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm not saying I'd want to go to Hungary right now. I'm just saying yeah, all the right wingers are there uh, living it up. But uh, I mean, Budapest is such a beautiful city. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I haven't been to Italy yet. I really need to go there. Um, love to go to Japan at some point. Um, let's see where else. My wife and I for honeymoon went southeast asia so hanoi was amazing um cambodia is a, a really interesting country with lots of just really warm wonderful people um yeah i don't know uh, my wife's family's from colombia and i have not been there yet but i'm excited to go soon i hope um love to go to the ball uh the um the baltics um uh sweden norway denmark uh and the Latvia, Lithuania, I've heard, you know, that, that sounds like a fun trip. Uh, sounds I'm like you've got of, a lot of stuff to, 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 a lot of travel to plan here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, uh, I have a kind of Anthony Bourdain uh, approach to the world, which is, you know, you should go and eat people's food and enjoy their hospitality and get to know people. And it's, it's, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the most telling things I think about Trump is that he, uh, he absolutely hates uh, traveling to other countries. Um, and I remember, I can't remember where, maybe it was an interview or something. He said he's, he's been to, you know, his wife, Melania, is from Slovenia. And he went to Slovenia once and he he apparently didn't even want to get off the plane. And he talked about what a, you know, what a dump it was. And like, Slovenia is just a wonderful country. Like, I, I would love to go back there. It's like beautiful and mountainous and the people are just extremely welcoming and kind. And um, uh, Ljubljana, the capital, is like, has this, there's graffiti all over the place, but it's like, beautiful in its own way it's like kind of this this it's very expressive and interesting and um i, I absolutely love that but i you know i went to mark twain maybe you said that you know travel rid, cures you of your prejudices because you get to you know experience people and different cultures and it you know it, it's knowing your place in the world and uh yeah i've, I've missed explain it a lot why he because... didn't want to get off the plane <laughs> yeah it's true that's a good point um but yeah i mean the pandemic has, has robbed a lot of us of that and you know i think that may you know may contribute to all the kind of social strife and general kind of despair that we that we've seen it's like we've had less opportunity to kind of get to know other people and expose ourselves to new and interesting things i always ask if there are any criminal justice related books that you like or might recommend to our listeners uh do you have any favorite books um let's see i'm trying to um probably not that your listeners haven't already read but um I mean, actually, you know, one book that's pretty old at this point, but I, I really love it. And it, it really uh, informed a lot of my thinking about the drug war as uh, Smoke and Mirrors by Dan Baum. And when I say it's old, it's like 25 years old. I think it came out in the mid 90s. But it traces the history of the of the drug war, um, you know, back to the Nixon administration. And he interviewed, you know, a lot of the people in that administration. And he uh, talks about, uh, brings it up basically through, I think, the, the, the Clinton administration. But it's just such a, I mean, you, you see, um, you see kind of the, it's a, it's a narrative that describes the slow motion train wreck that is the drug war, you know, page by page meticulously. Um, and, you know, you, you know, you know, what's going to happen later. So you're like, no, you know, don't let this happen. And um, it's just, it's, it's really well done. Uh, We're doing it died. again with fentanyl. We're <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um Baum died a few years ago, but that book is, um, you know, it was kind of the inspiration for Rise of the Warrior Cop. The way he went about telling that story was kind of the template that I used for my book as well. Um, so that's 
that I think is just a wonderful book. I mean, it, it may seem a little dated at this point, although frankly, I mean, the roots of the drug war, it's still, no import, still important to know, you know, where all this bad policy came from and where it started. And uh, where can people find you, uh, uh, find your Substack? You mentioned it before, but just if you want to plug it again and, and your Twitter, maybe. Sure. So the Substack's called The Watch, but it's radleybalco.substack.com. Or if you just Google my name, I'm sure it'll pop up. Um, and it's, uh, you know, my my income is is uh, the vast majority of it comes from subscribers now, um, but it is free. Everything's free. So um, I just ask that, you know, if you like the work and, and think it's important, um, if you'd subscribe for, I think it's six bucks a month. Um, that helps me continue to do the work, but uh, it's also all available for public because, you know, there's no public consumption because there's no reason doing this work if people can't read it. Yeah, that makes sense. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not? And this is really just a chance for you to talk about anything else that you wanted to talk about, you know. <laughs> wow. Um, well, uh, let's see. I mean, I'm, uh, well, you should have asked me about my wife, who's also a great investigative journalist and does incredible work. Um, and in fact, her, her work has gotten two people uh, out of prison in the last few years. Um, I didn't even uh, know that was the case. I'd... Yeah, both both on death row. And, and in fact, her and she had a podcast about another case in Georgia. Um, that guy's out now, too. So, uh, yeah, uh, Liliana Segura, she writes for The Intercept and uh, you know, does incredible work I also. Oh, that was your wife. I've definitely read some of her stuff. That's interesting. Yeah, she's also kind of my editor right now while I'm, uh, you know, self-employed. <laughs> so uh, I have to plug her, I think. So that's a pretty good gig. You got kind of full circle there for both of you. Do you, I assume you edit her stuff, too, to some extent? Uh, well, she she kind of edits my stuff for the Substack because I don't have another editor to look at it. You know, she has great editors at the Intercept, but yeah, I mean, I, I read her stuff and offer feedback, and uh, yeah, it's definitely a a mutual thing. Um, but yeah, I'm much more reliant on her editing than she is on mine right now. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. And now my take. After 50 years of trillions of dollars wasted, hundreds of thousands of people incarcerated, foreign countries invaded, and with overdoses worse now than ever before, you would think people would get serious about trying something different. But of course not. When it comes to the drug war, it never ends. It will apparently never end. The war on drugs is a war on people, and it just keeps going and going and going. And a lot of that is because we, the public, just can't get enough of believing that incarceration is the best answer to addiction, despite the fact that that has never, ever, ever, ever worked. It's never worked. It's time for us to move on to trying some new solutions that actually help people with addiction, as opposed to simply doubling, tripling, quadrupling, quintupling down on a failed solution. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or who have given us a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your networks. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.